0: Want to be the first to know when new Forces for Nature episodes come out? Sign up for the newsletter on our website, www.forcesfornature.com. You can find the sign-up link at the bottom of the webpage or in the About section. When you do, you'll also receive a free checklist of easy, practical actions for nature that you can start taking today. I can't wait to connect with you. I'm Crystal DiMicelli. And welcome to the Forces for Nature show. Do you find yourself overwhelmed with all the doom and gloom you hear of these days? Do you feel like you, as just one person, can't really make a difference? Forces for Nature cuts through that negativity. In each episode, I interview someone who's doing great things for animals and the environment. We talk through the problem they're addressing, the solution they have found, we'll keep them going, and we'll leave you with practical action tips so that you too and become a force for nature. Today's guest is Paul Thompson, co-founder of the organization Save Pangolins. Now I said pangolins, not penguins. Pangolins happen to be the world's most trafficked animal, and I'm willing to bet that you've never even heard of them. They look like, well, if an artichoke mated with an armadillo. I didn't know of them either until I met Paul, and if it wasn't for Save Pangolins, Even less people would know about these animals, therefore less would care, and the threat of their extinction in the near future would almost be a certainty. What Paul is up against are longstanding cultural beliefs, very well-funded illegal syndicates, and the simple fact that this animal is still not a household name. But today, for you and I, that will change. Hi Paul, thank you so much for being here with me on Forces for Nature. It's so great to have you.
1: Thank you, it's great to be here.
0: Of the four most profitable transnational crimes in the world, wildlife trafficking ranks fourth just behind drugs, arms, and human trafficking. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that threatens wildlife populations, funds terrorist activities, and destabilizes ecosystems and communities. To start, can you tell me what wildlife trafficking is?
1: Wildlife trafficking is often international syndicates that are profiting off the supply and demand of wildlife products and animals themselves. So in some cases, we're talking about endangered species like pangolins, and it's often the same players that are trading wildlife that are also involved in other illegal activities, like you mentioned, arms, narcotics, even human trafficking.
0: How's that different from poaching?
1: So poaching is the supply side, and the trafficking is more of the trade segment. So if you think about the chain, the overall chain, you've got the supply of the animal, which is given by the poachers. And then you've got the trafficking and the trade, which are the crime syndicates that are moving the animals around. And then you've got the demand side. So the people that are consuming or buying those animal products.
0: There's a video on your website with a Nigerian vet speaking about how hunters or poachers don't even know the cost of the pangolin on the global market they're actually getting cheated in what they get paid. In that case, why would somebody choose to do this?
1: So you have to think from a poacher's perspective, these are often people from low-income areas that are maybe adjacent to a national park or a protected forest or an unprotected uh, piece of habitat. And If they don't have a solid livelihood or a solid job, they might be approached by a middleman who is seeking some kind of animal product like a pangolin. And if that person needs some extra money to feed their family, even though there is a risk of arrest, they might consider doing that. And to your point about getting cheated, it's true. So, for example, pangolin scales. I think in Vietnam, they can be sold for about 230 U.S. dollars for one kilogram of scales. But that poacher on the ground in Nigeria might only get like $58 per kilogram of scales. So there's a huge inequity there. And it's really an interesting aspect about this because I think a lot of people don't have empathy, understandably, for a poacher who's killing these animals, but in fact, The greater threats or the bigger issues at play here are often the middleman or the people that are ordering these large sums of wildlife products.
0: And unfortunately, that $58 can be considered a lot of money for someone from rural Nigeria. According to the organization Traffic, in the last decade, an estimated 1 million pangolins have been taken from the wild. That's an average of 200 animals per day. Unfortunately, they've earned the sad distinction of being one of the world's most trafficked animals. First things first, what on earth is a pangolin?
1: A pangolin is a mammal, but it's covered in scales. So, in fact, it looks perhaps more like a reptile or a little dragon. But, in fact, they are mammals, so they're warm-blooded, and they do have hair, and they are small, insect-eating mammals so if you think of a cross between a, an anteater and an armadillo, it's sort of what a pangolin is. So they range in size from you know, three or four pounds all the way up to 70 pounds. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't recognize is that there's quite a lot of difference between the different pangolin species.
0: How many species are there?
1: There's eight in total. So four pangolin species are found in Africa, and four are found across Southeast and East Asia. Some live up in trees, so we call that arboreal. They easily crawl up tree trunks and live up in the branches of trees using their prehensile tails. And then other species live on the ground and are kind of more like tank-like, like these little badgers that cruise around and live in burrows underground.
0: Do they have a distinctive role in the ecosystem?
1: Yeah, so people often ask me, like, why do pangolins matter? What are the benefits of saving them and what do they do for the environment? I like to think of pangolins as the gardeners of the ecosystem or little ecosystem engineers because they eat so many insects, you can't even believe it. So one single adult pangolin can eat 70 million insects every year. So they are likely performing a pretty significant ecosystem service for doing pest control. And at the same time, those pangolins that burrow underground are excavating little tunnels and holes that are either aerating soil or they're creating new habitat for other species as well.
0: In many parts of the world, wildlife trafficking occurs for cultural and medicinal use such as bear bile, rhino horn, and even tiger penis. Why are the pangolins in such high demand?
1: So this is the real kicker right here. Pangolins are an animal that most people have never even heard of. But like you mentioned, they are the most trafficked mammal in the world. So they are in high demand and increasingly so in the illegal wildlife trade. It's not just one threat that they have to deal with. It's a multitude. So penguins are sought after for their meat. Their meat is considered a luxury good across many parts of Southeast Asia. So if you want to impress a new business partner or do something showy and ostentatious, you might order pangolin, which is off the menu because it's an illegal item, but you still want to do it as a status symbol. Secondly, their scales. Pangolins are covered in these very unique scales made of keratin, which is the material in your fingernails. And that trait that makes them so unique also makes them high in demand. So those scales are used in traditional Chinese medicines and also in other Asian medicines to treat a variety of ailments.
0: Has science proven that their scales are medically effective?
1: To date, there have been no studies demonstrating that pangolin scales have any sort of medicinal properties or values that treat the alleged illnesses that they're used to prevent. Effectively, it is similar to just taking pills of keratin, which is just a standard animal-grown protein. However... The cultural belief that penguin scales cure things, that belief across many parts of the world is strong enough that it still leads to this huge demand to use them in traditional Chinese medicine and other traditional medicines too.
0: I want to circle back on the belief in just a little bit. How are they taken from the wild?
1: The ones that live in the forest or out in arid areas, they all have one similar characteristic, which is when they're threatened, they roll up into a tight little ball. So that defense mechanism has been effective to protect them and keep them safe for millions of years. However, in this day and age, it also makes them very easy for a poacher to come along, spook the penguin. it rolls up into a nice little package that the poacher then can stuff into his sack. And so what we're seeing is that poachers spread out over vast areas, mostly in Central and West Africa, are entering the forest. Sometimes they use dogs to detect pangolins and draw them out of their burrows or down from tree. And then those poachers will scoop up the pangolins and sometimes they will try to transport pangolins alive because they can fetch a higher price that way. Effectively, they're more fresh. And then if not, they will kill the pangolins on site, strip them of the scales and ship the scales in large quantities to various buyers all over the world.
0: So if they're shipping these live animals, what's the journey like? How do they go undetected with live animals?
1: I've heard stories that cover the board, and they're all so grim. I've heard stories of police stopping cars that have live pangolins sort of stuffed under hidden compartments underneath the seats. I've heard of boats with Sacks and sacks and sacks of live pangolins all smooshed in together. Obviously, many pangolins are dying along the way, but pangolins are, in fact, surprisingly tough. So many pangolins do survive and they either reach their destination alive, only to be killed at a restaurant, perhaps, or they might be fortunate and get rescued by customs officials or police or conservationists along the way.
0: When they're making this journey, they're not getting food and water for how many days or weeks?
1: Well, it's it's effectively pangolin torture. So they're stuffed into sacks. They might be tied up so that they can't unfurl from their protective ball. Um, they're certainly not given any food or water. Or if if somebody does try to keep them alive, they'll be given like bread or milk, which are things that pangolins do not eat because pangolins eat only insects. So often pangolins will go for days maybe even a week or so without any sort of any sort of basic care Um, and that's why we that's why most of them do die in the trade and it's it's just absolutely horrendous
0: oh man that just breaks my heart to hear it's widely known that china is one of the biggest consumers of pangolin parts According to a 2016 report by the China Biodiversity Conservation and Green Development Foundation, some 60 types of traditional medicines that contain pangolin scales continue to be permitted by the government every year. An average of 29 tens of scales are permitted to be used, which roughly represents 73,000 individual pangolins. Since international trade of the Asian pangolin has been illegal since 2000, where is China getting their pangolins from?
1: So it remains a huge problem for pangolin conservation. The fact that the Chinese government still allows a certain degree of use of pangolin scales in traditional medicines. Sometimes these are state-owned hospitals and pharmacies and doctors that are prescribing pangolin scales. So it would be ideal if the Chinese government would stop promoting the use of pangolin scales as a practice. Now, It's really interesting. Nobody knows for sure exactly where these pangolin scales are coming from. However, best guesses seem to indicate that they're obtained sort of through two primary means. One, illegally. So through illegal shipments from mostly from Africa into China via other countries along the way. Or number two, China government possibly has large stockpiles of pangolin scales that they've been slowly building up over the past few years in the event that pangolins go extinct or it becomes illegal to use any kind of pangolin scales. At least they'll have a supply on hand that they can tap into. Very little is known about this. It's very difficult for conservationists to find out really what's going on, but it's something that a lot of people are trying to work with the Chinese government to do
0: international trade of the four species of Asian pangolins has been prohibited since 2000. In 2017, a ban on international commercial trade in all eight species went into effect, voted in place by the 183 governments that are party to the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, known as CITES, which is the treaty that regulates cross-border trade in wild animals and their parts. Unfortunately, despite this, the trafficking of these animals doesn't seem to be letting up.
1: Right now, we're really seeing a crisis facing penguins. Penguins are the most trafficked mammals in the world. We've found out recently that 500,000 have been poached in traffic just since 2016. And we're also seeing significant seizures taking place. So since 2015, 185 tons of penguin scales have been seized from the illegal wildlife trade. And what we're also seeing is that rate is increasing. So three quarters of that total of all those seizures, those have just have taken place just in the last two years. So if this rate continues, all eight species of penguins could definitely go extinct in the foreseeable future.
0: But those numbers today and when you first learned of the pangolin's dire situation back in 2007 hasn't stopped you from trying to make a difference. In 2007, you were accepted into the program, the Emerging Wildlife Conservation Leaders. As a part of the training, participants are tasked with completing a conservation campaign project. You saw the plight of the pangolin and decided to do something more than just a one-time project. Tell me about that.
1: So in 2007, I was like most people in that I had never really heard of a pangolin or I didn't know much about penguins. And as soon as I learned a little bit about our scaly friends, I immediately fell in love with them. And that sort of joy of discovery was quickly overshadowed by the fact that I was learning about the threats facing them and that penguins were increasingly popping up in the illegal wildlife trade. So we started digging around in that a little bit more, and it was shocking. It was a major moment of awakening for me. I just felt really compelled to do something. I, I did not want to see penguins go extinct before people even woke up to learning about how amazing they are, especially in the West. I think most people have never even heard of penguins. One of the first things we did was we created a website called savepangolins.org to help generate some awareness and promote the species and get people to start caring about pangolins and see if there was a way we could help.
0: Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you eventually leave your job to man Save Pangolins full-time?
1: So the website Save Pangolins... Quickly evolved into a standalone conservation project that we ran together with my co founder, Carrie Parker. Now, we both had day jobs at the time. I was working on a lion conservation project, Carrie was working for the US government. So, everything we were doing for, say, penguins was on the side, and it was very difficult balancing all of that. But for the first number of years, I like to tell people we were moonlighting in penguins because we were just doing it as a side gig. Eventually, I did leave my job and was dedicated to running Save Penguins full time. But now I have taken a position with the Wildlife Conservation Network. And what's been exciting about that is I've been able to sort of bring in some of my penguin work through this new role with WCN.
0: You've shown so much dedication to this, despite how insurmountable it seems. In the beginning, what made you feel like you had the power to make change despite that uphill battle?
1: Everybody asks me this. Everybody says, uh, you know, what can I do? How can I make a difference? I live, you know, in Florida or New York or California. How can I help pangolins that are all the way across the world? And I tell them my own story. I say, look, I was just one person and I took a first step to helping. And that was by doing something that I could do. And at the time that was creating a little website. So I would encourage people that there's definitely something you can do. There is a way you can get involved. You just have to figure out what that is. And generally it starts with your time. Find a way to spend a little of your time looking into the issue and seeing what role you can play to support it.
0: Tell me more about Save Pangolins. What does the organization do?
1: So initially, Save Pangolins was just a website that was raising awareness about the issue. And what we found was that because it was the first and only website about pangolins at the time, a lot of people came to us and kind of came out of the woodwork from all over Africa, Asia, Europe, and reached out to us and said, hey, I'm doing a pangolin project here. I'm studying pangolins over there. Like, how can we help? How can we coordinate? So over the next few years, Our effort grew into a more fully-fledged conservation project. And right now, Save Pangolins focuses on two things. We continue to raise awareness because that remains a big factor that's preventing their conservation because you can't save something if you don't know it exists. And number two... Save Pangolins drives support to pangolin conservation in the field. So we support groups that are working on the front lines for pangolin conservation in Africa and Asia, groups that are working to stop the poaching, stop the trafficking, and stop the demand.
0: And that support is in the form of funding, I assume?
1: We support groups in various ways. So perhaps the most tangible way we can help organizations is by funding them there is a serious lack of funding available for penguin conservation. I think it's worth pointing out that the penguin conservation movement is relatively new and young. So people have been studying and protecting elephants or tigers or lions for decades. But the conservation community didn't really start working on pangolins collectively until late, 2008, 9, 10, around that. It's a young movement. So, funds and resources are needed. Another way we also provide support is by helping build the capacity of those emerging groups. So, whether it's designing strategies and programs that protect pangolins, or helping to convene people so that all of us as a global community are working together in the same effective ways.
0: And I'm sure this hasn't come easy. What are some of the roadblocks that you've encountered along the way?
1: I'd say one of the biggest roadblocks we faced is that people don't know what penguins are. So you first have to start with that education and aspect of telling people what penguins are and getting them to care. And then you can convert that interest into action. That's one big roadblock. Another one is time. I Just worry that we're too late. And sometimes that gives me a lot of anxiety because we have got to move quickly if we are going to push back against this crisis. If you look at these numbers of the trades and how many tons of pangolins are being seized every year, we as a conservation community, we've got to act fast before it's too late. And I think funding is another big roadblock. It's often hard to raise money for pangolins for any kind of wildlife. You know in terms of global philanthropy, just a tiny, tiny fraction goes to nature and conservation. and within that an even smaller fraction goes to international wildlife. And because few people know about penguins, even less is available to them. So a big thing we're trying to do is get people excited about penguins all over the world so that we can help fund a conservation response.
0: What's your biggest challenge now?
1: Right now, the penguin conservation community is very spread out. It's relatively young. And I think the challenge we face is figuring out how can we work together more effectively and more collaboratively so that we can be successful. Conservationists are not always equipped to work at the same level of these international crime syndicates that are trafficking penguins, They have millions of dollars. They have high technology. They know every corner to sneak through conservationists, we're, we're behind. So we need to work together more effectively with less competition. And I see that as a big challenge right now, but it's something that we're trying to work on. I'd love to see more conservation groups come together and align around shared strategies for penguin conservations and start putting our differences aside and really work as a united front.
0: We talked before about how there's a demand because of long-standing cultural beliefs. How do you change a culture?
1: This is a big challenge that conservationists face, and I think it's also why you don't see as many programs addressing the behavior change side, because changing behavior of long-standing cultural beliefs, it could take generations. And that is something that we short-sighted humans have a very tough time doing. So it can be done, right? People's attitudes can change. Their behaviors, especially if they're contributing to the endangerment of an entire species, can change. We've seen successes. So if you look at shark fin soup, right, there's been a significant decline in the consumption of shark fins because of fantastic work At all levels, from conservationists all the way up to governments, that have encouraged people to stop that long-held custom of eating shark fin soup. I think we can do the same thing for penguins. And I've seen it, especially in younger people. Younger people now, they don't want to be responsible for a species to go extinct just because they like to eat it. I mean, I think that, to me, is the big thing. We, as humans, we can prevent this. We can manage this. We can make the choice to save pangolins from extinction, not eat them to extinction.
0: A light in all of this is that confiscated live pangolins have a chance to survive. What happens when live pangolins are rescued?
1: Those unfortunate little survivors of the pangolin trade often are in horrendous shape. I've heard so many stories and seen so many gut-wrenching videos and photos of penguins that have been rescued from traffickers and poachers that have lost a leg or that have been stuffed with cornstarch to make them heavier and more valuable but they're still alive. And in some even more incredible scenarios, we've seen pangolins that have been rescued from the trade that have babies that they are protectively enveloped around, or even pregnant female pangolins. And in those cases when those penguins are survivors, if they're lucky and if they're rescuers, such as police or customs officials, if they rescue them in time, they can give them to certain conservationists out there. There are a few groups who are really pioneers in the rescue and rehabilitation of pangolins. So Tiki Highwood Foundation in Zimbabwe save Vietnam's wildlife in Vietnam. These guys have been rescuing pangolins, hundreds of pangolins every year from the illegal trade. They've been able to sort of nurse these pangolins back to health. They don't always succeed and many do die in the process, but at least several hundred have been able to be rehabilitated and then released safely back into undisclosed protected areas and forest reserves and things like that.
0: How wonderful it must feel to know that you gave that animal a second chance. What else gives you hope?
1: So one of the things that has given me a really renewed sense of hope in the last couple of years is that we put together this new Pangolin Crisis Fund. So the Pangolin Crisis Fund is an initiative between the Wildlife Conservation Network and Save Pangolins, and it's been supported by the Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation. And what's really cool about Pangolin Crisis Fund is that we have this 100% model. So that means that every single cent and every dollar of the donation that we receive, we send it directly to the field to protect penguins. Nothing is kept for overhead or administrative costs. The PCF funds any organization or any project so long as it's doing amazing work. So it's working across the entire range of penguins, so effectively all around the world. We fund projects that are doing anti-poaching work on the ground in Africa. We're funding groups that are doing an incredible demand reduction work in China. And then also some really important work that's investigating the illegal trade in pangolins and finding out who are these players, what routes are they using, how can we bring them down? And then they're going to work with enforcement to help shut down those illegal networks for pangolin coaching.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. That really does bring a whole new sense of hope to the crisis.
1: One thing I'm really excited about is the response that we've seen so far. So we launched the Pangolin Crisis Fund just midway through last year and already so many people have made donations and so many people have wanted to help that I think that it's really an indication that now is the time where people are getting on board and know that there is still hope for pangolins and that this money is well spent. We're sending it to the field and we're creating an entire network of incredible pangolin projects that are just doing awesome work.
0: And I'm sure these people love pangolins because they know of them, and it could very likely be because of safe pangolins.
1: Well, we've tried our best to help raise the profile of the little guy.
0: Can you tell me about a moment where you said to yourself, this, this is why I do it?
1: So the first time I saw my first live pangolin in the wild was that moment for me. So I had been working actually on pangolin conservation for a number of years before I even saw a pangolin in the wild. And that's because pangolins are so elusive and difficult to see or find. But I was on a trip to Singapore, which actually has an important pangolin population there, in the forests, in the outskirts of the city. And I got to see a pangolin. It was a a Sunda pangolin. And no matter how much I had read about pangolins or learned about pangolins, as soon as I saw that little guy browsing through the forest floor, sort of looking for some insects, just he had this temperament that was almost like a little piglet. It was just so shy and endearing and curious. I was in love.
0: That's awesome. I love it. I know that feeling and it's such a good one. You mentioned this before, but can you tell me again, what are the benefits of pangolin
1: conservation?
0: Why should we care to save them?
1: We have the power to save penguins, and I think it's really important. They play such an important role in their ecosystems, eating all the ants and insects and keeping pest populations down. But then they also play important cultural roles. So various cultures around the world, in Africa and Asia, places like Nepal, for example, the penguin does have a important role in certain communities' heritage and in their cultural beliefs. So as an example, in Zimbabwe, the penguin is considered a lucky totem. So I think the loss of a species like that, it's going to have a big impact on local habitats. But at the same time, it's going to be a loss of our human fabric, that humans as a species, we have the power to make the choice. And I think we can prevent penguins from going extinct. So we have that obligation.
0: You mentioned earlier the devastating numbers of pangolins that continue to be seized by law enforcement officials. And these are just the numbers of the ones that have been found. After working so hard for over a decade to try to stop this, how do you keep your head up and keep going?
1: I remember a really specific night. I think it was the second shipment in Singapore that was confiscated. Within one week, there were two back-to-back shipments of pangolin scales, each totaling 13 tons, which could have represented up to 33,000 dead pangolins just in one shipping container. And I remember waking up at night being like, just frozen, thinking we're too late or there's no hope. But I've changed my mind. I think that there is still hope because I've seen the people that are working all over the world and that are dedicating their time and they're working as fast as they can. I, I think we still can prevent the loss of pangolins as a species. And I think we can prevent big shipments like this from ever happening.
0: So a way for pangolins to be saved are for people not to eat them and for people not to use their scales for medicine. What can people do who aren't necessarily exposed to that? What can people do wherever they are to help save the pangolin?
1: So one of the great things about pangolin conservation is that everybody can play an important role. It might not sound like much, but spreading awareness and helping educate people about penguins is actually really significant when you consider how few people know about penguins, and that we can't support penguin conservation if people don't know that they exist. So I always encourage people post on your social media, tell your friends about penguins, be like me, just kind of chatter about penguins to everybody you meet on the street all the time. <laughs> generally you make more friends than enemies i can promise you that and yeah that's spreading awareness it's really important encourage people to follow safe pangolins on our social media there's a lot of great information on our website how to do that that's a fantastic way also another great way people can help is the good old-fashioned way of helping with fundraising so we are in desperate need of more funding so that we can do more for conservation so we would love to see donations made to the Pangolin Crisis Fund. And, you know, I just want to say that we have the 100% model where every dollar of every donation goes directly to the field. So it's really powerful.
0: Where can people get more information about Save Pangolins and the Pangolin Crisis Fund?
1: There's all sorts of great information and videos and photos on our website, which is savepangolins.org. And you can learn about the really great work that's being done through the Pangolin Crisis Fund at pangolincrisisfund.org. We're also on social media, Instagram and, and Facebook as well.
0: World Pangolin Day is coming up. When is that?
1: World Pangolin Day is February 15th. And it's a citizen-led movement, a global movement around the world, everybody celebrating essentially penguins and their conservation. So it's a fantastic opportunity for people to spark a conversation about penguins. And I really encourage everybody to post something on their social media leading up to the 15th and on the 15th. We definitely are going to see a lot of really cool activities being coordinated all over the world. You are going to find all sorts of amazing videos and fun photos and things like that. So it's a great opportunity to sort of move the needle for pangolin awareness.
0: Is there a specific hashtag people should follow?
1: Yes, absolutely. Check out hashtag World Pangolin Day.
0: Paul, this has been so great. Thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you so much for all that you do. You're making a difference.
1: Thanks so much, Crystal. It was really great to have the opportunity to speak with you.
0: To still keep your eye on the ball and your head in the game, despite getting knocked down with each shipment of pangolins that gets intersected, is truly admirable. What Paul didn't mention is I bet that because of Save Pangolins' efforts in raising awareness that this animal exists and that it needs our help, more of these animals are being saved than ever before, and the better officials get at spotting pangolin traffickers, and the harder they make it for the traffickers to be successful, hopefully the fewer traffickers that will be in the future. In the meantime, learn about them, flood your social media with their cute pictures, don't buy any products if you come across them, and donate money to the Pangolin Crisis Fund if you can. Let's make sure these cute artichoke armadillos stick around for the long haul. Since the taping of this episode, the coronavirus known as COVID-19 has come on the scene and is causing worldwide disruptions in economies, livelihoods, and people's sense of calm. More disheartening has been the loss of life around the world. Some have speculated, though it's still not proven, that the virus could have originated from pangolins in a Chinese wildlife market, much in the same way that SARS and Ebola are believed to have originated from close contact with other wild animals. Whether this is true or not, it's important to keep in mind that these animals are not a threat to humans when kept in the wild. It's in their capture, transport, and quote-unquote care in unsanitary conditions that threats may arise. To date, China and Vietnam have implemented bans on wildlife trade for consumption, though there is a loophole for medicinal uses. With the serious potential threat to human health and the economy, it's vital that wildlife trade is seriously reconsidered. For your part, you can sign petitions that come your way, avoid eating or buying any wildlife products, and don't partake in photos with wild animals. And for the moment, practice social distancing. We all need to be a part of this solution. Don't forget to go to forcesfornature.com and sign up to receive weekly show notes, action tips, and be included in monthly giveaways. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to go to your podcast platform and please rate and review it. And don't forget to subscribe to never miss a new one. Hit me up on Instagram and Facebook and let me know what actions you've been taking. Adopting just one habit can be a game changer because imagine if a billion people also adopted that. What difference for the world are you going to make today?